My name is Patrick Hines. I'm the co-host of True Crime Obsessed Podcast. Welcome to episode four of Obsessed with Abducted in Plain Sight. So, you guys, you're not going to hear a lot from me in this episode. Rather, this episode is all about how the film Abducted in Plain Sight came together. After all the research and interviews and casting and shooting, when it came time to take all the material they had and make an actual movie out of it, how'd they do it? How did they decide what the core story was and how to tell it? Over the course of putting this podcast together, one of the names that kept coming up as someone who was key to the storytelling of the film was the editor, James Cood. And so we decided that Skye and James should sit down and have a conversation about how they decided what should stay and what should be cut and how the storytelling helped propel this small, independent project into a worldwide phenomenon. As a refresher, we'll start with the trailer for Abducted in Plain Sight, and then we'll jump right into their conversation. Mr. Birchhold had such an effervescent, wonderful personality. We became very good friends. He was so engaged with the kids, too. I mean, he really was fun. and He could give me a great feeling about myself. I was attracted to him. Jan Broberg and Robert Burstold had an unnatural relationship. I loved him as deeply as I've ever loved anyone. My brother was always a sexual pervert. He always did like his little girls. Burstold said, I want to take Jan out horseback riding. When she didn't come home, I was a little nervous. It was a nationwide search. Jan went with me voluntarily. They bring in aliens and mind-washing. The mission was that I was to have a child that would save the alien planet by the time I turned 16. The Brobergs say the attacks still continue. If you're laying a trap for me, I'll kill you. His number one goal was to seduce Jan Broberg. And if he had to destroy the family, he would do it. There'll never be anybody for me but Jan. Never. So I'm sitting here with James Cood, who was the editor on Abducted in Plain Sight. And tell the audience a little bit how we met and what our process was in editing together this kind of incredibly intense, crazy documentary. Yeah, sure. I actually met you through a, like a cold website, like a, a Staff Me Up website for industry individuals. And um, you had posted an ad. You didn't say much about the, the film at the time, but you were posting an ad that you were looking for a documentary. I think it said true crime. And at that point, I wasn't working, so I was pretty much applying to everything that I could find. And then you, you emailed me back and said, hey, I got your resume, and I'd like to meet with you. So I remember we met out at your office out by the Bourbon Airport. And the first time we met, what you said to me was, this is a story about a young girl who was kidnapped and raped by a man twice. 
that was all you said to me. And I, I remember I had this look on my face like, how is this even possible? And then you started to unpack some of the story for me. And I just remember as you were telling me some of the things that happened, my brain couldn't wrap around it. It was just too many things you were talking about. And the, and the father had an affair with the, and the mother had an affair with the, with the kidnapper and the rapist. And, and there were aliens involved and all this stuff. And you only gave me like maybe two or three minutes of a description. But already I was like, one, this is fucked up. Two, this is amazing and I really want this job. And three, this is going to be really hard. And we had a cut already. I'd, I'd been working and there was a semblance of a cut to begin with. And really, you were coming on board to kind of take all of that apart and put it all back together again. Yeah. I feel like the kidnapping, like when Jan gets kidnapped, is the only thing that's really reminiscent of that first cut. Yeah, that's what I remember. The only thing that I remember seeing actually cut was the her description of the, the UFO and, and some of that, and sort of the sound effects and all that. I woke up. It was dark. I had the sensation that I was moving, but I was laying on a bed. My wrists and my ankles both had straps around them. I couldn't move. This monotone voice kept talking in my ear. It looked like a little white intercom looking box that I could I could see to the side of my pillow. And I immediately thought I'd been kidnapped by a UFO. So that didn't change too much from that original cut. But I remember before I got the job, you sent me the radio cut and said, take a look at this and let me know what you think. And I said, okay. And so I watched it and I saw all these experts that were describing the events of what happened and, and trying to, to let the audience understand why the events happened. And to me, that was just taking the power out of the actual events happening. And I thought, I think if you take these experts out and just tell the story from the perspective of the family it would actually be a much more powerful film. So that was my pitch when I came in to meet with you, is this is what I think we should do with this. I didn't know if you were going to go for that. I didn't know what your connection with these experts were. But that was what I felt was the approach on how I would take that. And luckily, you and I agreed on that. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was brilliant, really, because... I feel like the experts added a certain context, and we're going to hear from some experts in this podcast. So they're going to still kind of get their message out there. But really, that choice, I think, to keep it about the family was so critical in getting that roller coaster ride that they must have been going through in that time, I think, inherent in the film. And so, so from the beginning, taking those experts out and really keeping it this personal story about this family was kind of our journey for the next two years, was yeah, it? I'm not sure if it was quite two years. I think it might have been closer to a year and a half. Yeah. And at that point, we thought we had locked picture. Oh, yeah. And that's when you discovered the courtroom footage of Jan in 2004, where she confronted B in the courtroom. I hadn't seen the man for 30 years. And for about the first five minutes, I was shaking like a leaf. You know this is quite a story. And you have sold a lot of books because of the story, right? Is this your goal? This is my goal? Uh -huh. My goal, Mr. Birch told us, to educate the public about predators like you. That is my goal. Oh, I see. I hope you do see. I hope you do. I cannot believe that you can look me in the eye. You have no soul. 
And at that point, we had just heard Jan tell the story about it. So when you, you, you emailed me and said, we found this footage, I want to do a new interview with Jan, would you come back to Lock Picture? But then there was like this hurry up because we'd gotten into a festival and they called me and they said, congratulations, you've been accepted. And I'm like, I'm not done with the film. Like we've taken apart act three. And I called you and I said, we need to have this done in two weeks. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was in the course, like, I think from when we locked picture to when it actually premiered was like four weeks, if even that. I know. It was so tight. It was and so tight. The idea of doing final post on a film, which can take months sometimes in the course of four weeks, I didn't know how you did that. It's crazy. I was working 24 hours a day, yeah. literally. It was so crazy. <laughs> Coming up, what was the hardest scene for Jim and Skye to cut? Also, they talk about the trust it took between the two of them to make this film and how they stayed sane working on a project this dark over the years it took to finish. So are there any scenes that really stick out to you that you wish we had been able to keep in the film that sort of ended up on the cutting room floor? I think probably the last scene that we took out of the film, probably, and that's the Mexico scene. Um, And I remember we actually took that scene out of the film the final week of editing. And it was because B had gone down to Mexico, I think a month before, was it a month before? Yeah. He kidnapped Jan. He had gone down to Mexico exclusively to adopt a young Mexican girl down there, a young 10, 12-year-old girl. And he had actually gone into a room with a lawyer and they were almost auditioning all these little girls. They were bringing in these little girls in front of him that he was basically inspecting that he was going to take back to America to adopt, which actually meant, you know, to rape them. And so he does this audio recording where he's describing the process of looking at these little girls. So walking down the line, I looked at each of the little girls individually. The ones that I was interested in, I took their chin in my hand and looked at the features of their face. I stood back and looked at the features of their body. Finally, after spending almost an hour, I picked two little girls, both of them blue-eyed, both of them fair-skinned and fair-haired, and the kind of little girl that I could love. It's really sickening and heartbreaking at the same time because at one, at one point he says the little girl started to cry and the mom goes up to her and says, you're going to a better life, stop crying. And when I heard that, I remember thinking, oh my God, this is, this is awful. And he would try to take the girl back to America. Pete Welsh, the FBI agent, said she was stopped at the border and the girl was taken away from him. But I remember we had this discussion about it's such a great story, but we were really focusing on how Berkstall affected the Broberg family that it felt like a detour that was taking us out of the forward momentum of the story. It was heartbreaking losing that scene. We both, I think, really wanted to keep it in, but it was just derailing the story a little bit. And it's funny because I was as as I was thinking about clips to pull for this podcast, I went back and listened to some of the expert interviews that we cut out forever ago. And one of them, Diana Concanon, talks about that scene and him going to Mexico and how she felt that that escalated his desire to force him into the kidnapping. It appears that the only purpose for this attempted adoption was to have a child who could gratify his needs. Certainly, if the urges were not tempered 
and they were still at that heightened level. It could cause him to be even more behaviorally dysregulated. It may cause him to be more impulsive, more urgent in his actions in order to get his own needs met. And it could have precipitated the kidnapping. She specifically says it seems like that was his escalating behavior. Wow. And that makes sense because there were other little girls that he did this to, to beforehand and after. So yeah. it felt like, you know, each time he did it, it felt like it fueled whatever that was inside of him that, that forced him to do those things. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, too, what it's, what it's like to work on content like this over the course of a year and a half. I mean, you more than anybody, you're sitting down with it for eight to 10 hours a day, five days a week for an extended period of time. I remember when I was working on this project, I said to my partner, my partner Dave, I said, I'm depressed all the time. Why am I feeling depressed all the time? And he said, because you spend all day watching people describe child molestation. And I was like, oh, yeah. It's hard because in one perspective, you have to be empathetic with the people and you have to be able to feel what they're feeling and that's tough to take on. But on the other side, you have to be judicious. You have to be able to say, no, I can't include that. I have to, you know, you have to make hard decisions. So it was this sort of weird mixture of, I felt an empathy towards these people. I felt a lot of anger towards the parents um, and I felt a responsibility. Also, I felt like this is a really good story and these people are so incredibly brave for coming forward and telling this that I have a responsibility as an editor to be as truthful to them as possible. So it was a mixed bag of emotions for me. Is it still like if you when you watch the film now, do you still have that mixed bag of emotions? I I'd say this. This is one of the few projects that I can look at and not second guess myself. And I mean that as a compliment to both of us. Talk a little more. You started talking about how you felt like where our choices came from and that you're not second guessing yourself on this project. Talk more about that. I had never worked with you before. So you and I, both of us had to sort of figure out a language that we spoke, a cinematic language. And I did not know much about you. You didn't know much about me. So I th- For me, the challenge of working on a project with a director I've never worked for is figuring out the trust, the trust issue, because I'm going to have to be able to try things and I'm going to have to be able to fail. And I have to feel like I trust you to be able to try those things. Because if I can't experiment, then I don't feel like I'm of much use. So you gave me a lot of permission to to try things. And, and, uh, you know, one example of that was, you know, the interviews that you did with the parents were, you did two interviews with the parents, and each of those interviews went on for, you know, six to eight hours. They were very long. And they basically described their whole life at different points. And at one point, I thought we should actually go all the way back to the beginning about how Bob and Marianne met. Bob was, if I recall, Bob was a missionary in the Mormon church, and Marianne was a friend of his twin brother, and they had exchanged letters, and Bob was infatuated by her letter, and so i got to meet this person when I get back. So I thought we should actually take the story all the way back to when Bob and Marianne met. And you went, okay, try it. (laughs) And I went... Okay, great. So I started to put it together, and then I showed it to you, and you said, you were very gentle with me. You said, okay, I think you're rolling back a little bit too far, but, you know, I think maybe we need to get closer to, you know, when Jan was born. Um, So I felt, but I felt in that connection or that conversation with you, I felt like, okay, she's going to let me try these things, and it's okay if if I'm wrong, because, you, you know, five times you're wrong, the sixth time you're right kind of thing. And I think that's what documentary editing for me is discovery. There's no script. You just have hours and hours of interviews and you have to put a script together. 
coming up. Sky and Jim share what they thought was the most challenging aspect of making the film. We learn another plotline they had to leave out, and they discuss the very difficult task of portraying Jan's parents in a sympathetic light. So what do you think was the most challenging aspect of this film? Um, probably the first 30 minutes. The first 30 minutes, because that was the section of the film that we went over and over again multiple times, because... In that first 30 minutes, you have different time jumps. And the question was, where do we want to start the story from? Do we start the story from when Berkstall met Marianne? Do we start it from when he met Jan? Do you start it from the abduction? And we tried all of those different things of starting the the story from different places. But because of every time you jump back in time or forward in time, it's disorienting to the audience. I call it like steering the Titanic. When you steer a ship... You have to steer, you know, they don't just immediately turn on a dime. You have to turn them very slowly. And it can take miles sometimes to turn a ship. To me, that's what a time jump is in a a film. You have to orient the audience for why you're actually going back or forward in time. So it was that first 30 minutes. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I always liken it to the Titanic too, but in a really different way. I think of it as the Titanic because you know what's going to happen. You just don't know how. Like you know the iceberg is coming and you know everybody is going down in that ship, but you want to find out because so many people have said to me, they watch the first 20 minutes and they're like, what more could they be? They've given away everything in the first 20 minutes. And then they go, oh, Oh, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Like I've even had a friend of mine say, he described it as like a little girl gets kidnapped. Her mom and dad both have affairs with a pedophile and she's kidnapped a second time and I haven't ruined anything for you. Oh, and there's aliens. (laughs) And it's like, you're right. You haven't really ruined anything for them. (laughs) No, no. And I think that was another challenge because there was so many, there's so many different things happen in the story that I wanted to keep the what the fuck quotient going through the whole thing. Basically, I think these type of stories are all about the reveals. So if you can keep those reveals going all the way through and keep the audience engaged, then I feel like you're telling a good story. Yeah. Um, the other thing, too, is, you know, the things that we cut out. That was the other challenging thing is, you know, we talked about the Mexico thing. Um, we didn't talk about, you know, the Bobo family actually went on vacation to Jackson Hole to visit Berkstold uh, at the Family Fun Center before Jan went up for those two weeks right around her 15th birthday or 16th birthday? 15th. 15th birthday, okay. Between the two kidnappings. Yeah, that the family basically goes on vacation to, I think, San Francisco, and then on the way driving back, they stop in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and say, hi, B, how's it going? Now, I remember Bob said he didn't want to do this, but still, they did it. And they, you know, this is after all these things that have happened. Um, I'm trying to think what other challenges there were. Sympathy for the parents. I think that was a big challenge oh, was, yeah. was to, to sort of find that sympathy for the parents. I don't know that we were 100% successful, especially now, sort of after reading so much of the, the hate tweets and everything online. But we worked hard to try to present the parents. And I don't know if it's sympathy, but in the most authentic and, and most balanced way possible. Yeah, I feel, we, I feel like we did. And I feel like that changed for me, actually, when I met Bob and Marianne while we were in post-production. Because I remember when I was working on it and I would say to you, no, I, don't, I don't like these parents. They're just awful. There's awful things they did. I can appreciate why the bravery they did for what they're doing. But it was just listening to their choices. Hours on end, every single day, I was like, I wanted to strangle them. And you were more of a softening influence, I felt, for me. It's like, you have to be sympathetic to them. You have to be sympathetic to them. And that changed for me, I felt like. They, they came down to shoot a couple pickup lines, some audio lines, you know, and I met both of them for the first time, 
And it struck me just how brave they were to walk into this room of they didn't know me. And, and before they met you, they didn't really know you. Well, I wasn't there. Yeah. That's why you were there. It was you and my husband because I was off on a shoot. Yeah. And they were coming into Los Angeles. I'm like, Matt, Jim, you got to go do this. And so they walked into a house not knowing anybody except that Matt was my husband. You were the editor. And they were like, OK, what do you need us to do? And they... They did these pickup lines. You basically hand them the affidavit and say, read the affidavit. And the affidavit is basically saying all the horrible things they did. And they just said, it's okay, we find that. And they just both read it. My daughter was not taken by force or against her will, nor was she held or confined against her will at any time while in the company of the defendant. I honestly believe there is a strong possibility that the defendant was under the impression He had my husband's and my consent to take my daughter with him when he left in October. I had the right under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution to keep these matters within my family. I feel that the interests of justice and society would not be served by continuing to prosecute this matter. That's when it sort of turned for me, that, that I, feel, I feel a sympathy for them at that point. And I felt how incredibly brave they were. And I know people sometimes come up to me and say, how can you justify those parents? And I say, look, they're so brave for doing this. And they didn't do it for any reason other than they don't want this to happen to somebody else. They didn't get paid. They're not making any money off this. They realize that they're probably going to get dragged through the mud because of this. And they just don't want this to happen to anybody else. That's the only reason they did it. I know. People keep saying, oh, they did it for the money. They did it for the money. And I'm like, A, there was no money. And B, how much money would it take? Really? Like, I can't imagine any amount of money being enough to convince someone to say this. So so it's really been interesting when people say it's about the money because I guarantee you it is not. No. So I remember, I don't know how far into the edit we were, but we had sort of played with the idea, and I think you lobbed the idea out there, do we hold off on revealing that Jan is alive until a little bit later and, and kind of hold that up? Yeah, I remember we talked about that, but it didn't. that didn't last very long. The one I do remember we talked about possibly keeping a secret was Susan. Because Jan tells a story about how, near the end, about how she was going to get a gun and she was going to kill Susan and then kill herself. My birthday is happening. My 16th birthday. I'm still pretty much in a panic. And I'm thinking, okay, if I am not pregnant, I'm going to get a gun. I'm going to tell Susan about the mission, and if she doesn't want to do it, then I'm going to kill her, and then I'm going to kill myself. And I do remember at that point of the film, Susan's in the film, but she's not one of the top main characters. So we had talked about possibly cutting all of the Susan bites out to make it look like that she actually did kill Susan. Um, But what that meant losing was when Susan tells the story about seeing her father break down on the bed after Jan was kidnapped for the first time. And that story is incredibly powerful. One day I walked in the house. Jan's bedroom was in the back of the house in the basement. I walked into her room and saw my dad uh, lying on her bed. And he was sobbing. And I don't remember my dad um, sobbing or really crying very much, even though he's an emotional person. Um, I think that was the first time I really realized that something really bad was going on. 
So we felt like, you know, any drama we can get out of keeping Susan, you know, the mystery of Susan out is not going to be paid off for what we would lose from from this scene. Yeah, and I think it also felt just a little bit too manipulated, you know. And so I'm I'm so happy because look, I would have loved to have more of Karen and more of Susan throughout the entire film. I think they have an incredibly interesting perspective that we didn't have an opportunity to get into the film. Um, I, I don't think we need it in this particular film, but if if there could be another film, I would love to see what their life has been like during this and since that. I think it's fascinating. When you asked me about this podcast and like some of the scenes that we cut out from the film, and I went back and I looked at, you did a timeline of the case and you footnoted that with all of the transcripts, the court transcripts. And there were thousands of pages of court transcripts that you read all these. And so every piece of the case was footnoted from an interview or from an affidavit or, or a picture or whatever. And looking at that timeline goes on you know, pages and pages and it describes all these events that are not in the film that I completely forgot about. Like there was another little girl before Jan in Pocatello that he tried to get, and there was, you know, description of that, and then, and there was a little girl after Jan that the same M.O., he had an affair with the mom and tried to convince the little girl that she was an alien princess. So when I went through all that, I thought, you know, you actually have a miniseries here. If you just, you know, the story of what Berkstall did to all these other women, this was just the Broberg chapter, but there's other chapters too. I, it's funny you, you bring up the, the miniseries element because so many people have said, that they wish it was longer, that that they would have loved to sort of hear more about the the context of the time, more about the Mormon church. And we tried hard to get the Mormon church in there. There were so many times. And I always felt like, yes, let's get these elements of the Mormon church in there and what their faith meant to them, how it hurt them, how it helped them, all of these different elements. And every time we tried to do that, it was just this rabbit hole that would take the film in such a different direction. It was such a divergence. Yeah, I remember that. I remember the first... The first screening that we had, the first test screening was at your house. Yeah. And it was just like a family and friends type thing just to see how it was working. And I remember it almost became like this tennis match about one side was, you know, you have to do the pro- the Mormon thing. And the other side was, no, this could have happened to anybody. It's not about a religion or it's, a, it's just religion in general. And back and forth on that. And I, th- I felt like the compromise that we had was we're going to mention the Mormon several times so that you know that. I felt like the MO for us as, a, as an editing team was – to tell the story, not to editorialize the story. For we're sure. not going to tell you how to feel. We're just going to tell you the story, and we're going to let you feel whatever you feel. And I honestly feel like that's part of the biggest strength of the film. Like I, I'm so proud of that approach to the film, that that's the approach that we took. And I still watch the film now, and it's just like, there's just a sort of an emotional intelligence about it, and you're not really sort of, in a big, great way, sort of pushing somebody to feel a certain way. <sighs> Coming up, Sky and Jim discuss the one other scene Jan had wanted them to take out of the film. They share how they felt when they learned that Jan's dad died just before the film premiered on Netflix. And they answer the question, could they ever have imagined that Abducted in Plain Sight would become a worldwide phenomenon? So there is a scene I wanted to talk about. The one scene with Cor Hoffman that Jan was like, "Mm, I don't know that you need that scene. And... And her her feeling behind that was because she did feel like everybody was kind of bamboozled by Birch Told, and he was the one that said that he wasn't, and there's some hindsight kind of going into that. We were invited to go on a boating trip with Birch Told, 
he was not just inviting us, but he had invited Jan. I just suspected that there was something amiss at that outing. I said, that's the last time that I will do anything with the Birdstools. I have no use for that. And he had a way of flattering you, doing things for you, and then taking advantage of the situation of trust that, that he puts you in. And I look at it now and I'm like, we could have left Cor out. Like, I'm not sure he's that additive. Yeah. And he does take you a little bit away from this because family's experience. Because he only shows up once. And yeah. he only shows up once. So there's part of me where I'm like, yeah, we could have left him out. But at the same time, I think that it does go back to that idea that Birchtold didn't really have the whole town under his thumb. There were people, and there were a lot of uh, the FBI interviews that we had read where other people were thinking, this relationship is inappropriate, this shouldn't be happening, I don't want this guy in my life. And so hearing that sort of one voice talking about the these many different voices that we didn't have a chance to interview, I thought was was important. Yeah. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about... Bob Broberg passed away in yes. November. Uh, how did you feel when you heard he passed away? Sad. I was really sad. Um, I, this may be an awful thing to say. I was sad, but I was also, part of me was a little relieved that I knew from watching it at film festivals how people reacted to that story. And I was afraid that there would be some pushback because of that story for him. And so I was incredibly sad. And it's hard for the family, but I was relieved that he didn't have to go through that. And I do remember the one time I watched the film at a film festival and he was in the audience and that story came up and there was the reaction that people always, first they laugh uncomfortably and then when he starts crying, they feel guilty and dead silence. And I remember after the movie, everybody in the theater just stood up and applauded these parents and they realized the bravery it took for them. So it, it was a mixed bag of emotions for me. At that point, I had met them a few times, and they were incredibly warm to me. They would always come up to me and say, thank you so much for helping tell this story. And they were just so sweet to me. I, f- I felt like they almost adopted me as part of their family. And so it was, it was hard. It was it hard. Was, I remember I was working on another project, and the, the director came in, and she could see that I was upset. And she said, what's wrong? And she'd seen the movie. And I said, Bob Roberg, the father from Abducted in Plain Sight, passed away. And she's like, oh, you okay? Do you need to take a minute? And I was like, yeah, let me just go walk around for a bit, then I'll be okay. But I remember taking that walk and reflecting on everything that I knew about this man and, again, just admiring his bravery. Yeah. So I remember back that time when you came for the interview, did you think it would turn into this? Did you think it would get the response that it has gotten? No, no. I thought that it, people, it would have a good reaction, but I did not think that you would be getting, you know, nonstop tweets about it all over the world. I didn't think there'd be these conspiracy theories on Reddit about it. I didn't think you'd be getting written up in all these different articles. All, uh, yeah, it was, it's just amazing. It's amazing because... I mean, at the end of the day, it's a movie about a pedophile. Yeah. And I never, I was like, there's, nobody's going to want to watch a movie about a pedophile. And we somehow created a bit of a zeitgeist and a movie about a pedophile that I feel is absolutely changing lives and that are, that is starting conversations and getting people talking and staying with people. And that's, that's another thing that I'm so proud of with this film too, is just how it has stuck with people and how they'll talk about it to their friends and it stays with them for weeks and months afterwards. Yeah. Sometime in the last week, I I looked at some of the tweets that people had done about this film and they're still actually coming at this point and they're still coming quite frequently, but somebody had said, I watched the film five months ago and it still sticks with me. Yeah. And I was like, wow. I know. I know. 
James Coode is a Los Angeles-based editor for film and television. Obsessed with Abducted in Plain Sight is produced by the Obsessed Network. And all four episodes of this limited podcast series are available to binge right now. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find our show. You can watch Abducted in Plain Sight on Netflix, Amazon Prime, or any other streaming platform. To learn more about Sky and her production company, Top Knot Films, visit topknotfilms.com. And if you're looking for more great podcasts, and who isn't, you can find all the podcasts we make at obsessednetwork.com.